0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Encounter Church this Father's Day weekend. Uh, A little while ago, I was in a conversation with a group of friends of mine, and there was a bunch of us in the circle, and somehow we got on the topic of um, traffic violations, moving violations. And we're just going around in the, in the circle and, and sharing how many speeding tickets or other violations we've received over the years. And we're all kind of, you know, middle-aged and, and, and you'd expect the number to be pretty high. So we're going around and it was like two, four, three and sharing some stories. And then we got to my friend and with this just goofy grin on his face, he kind of like leans forward and he goes, zero. And we're like, zero, come on. Like, you're, you're 40-something years old, and you've never received any ticket for anything ever. He goes, not only have I not received a ticket, I've never even been pulled over before. Come on, right? Like, who, do people like that even exist in the world? Like, give me a break. I, like, compare his story to my story. By the time I was 16 and a half years old, I think I had a half dozen tickets in my life already, like, racked up. I had like speeding tickets, couple of those. I kept hitting things. I got a ticket for an unsafe lane change, like that's a thing? Only when you hit a car, when, when you're doing that, you get a ticket for that, right? Like it got so bad that I'm, I got a, a, tic- or a, a letter, a nicely but sternly written letter from my insurance company, um, suggesting and also requiring that I find services elsewhere. They called me a high-risk pool. Hard not to take that personally. I'm with my older brother, and I'm explaining. I'm like, dude, if I get one more point on my driver's license, they're gonna take it away. I'm gonna have my license suspended. I have to make it from now until I'm 18 with zero points. And he goes, you'll be fine, just stop running into things. I told him I can't. I can't, I'm apparently incapable. I've learned and I've grown a lot, especially in driving, since that time, it's, it's gotten much better, but that's a little bit of like what's going on in my psychology, particularly when I'm like barreling down the highway these days at a, at a robust 68 miles an hour, and I see a parked police car, and he's got like the hair dryer out, you know, like the radar gun, and he's just tagging people, and I get terrified, and it's... It's totally irrational. I'll start slowing down and my wife leans over and she's like you're going 68. If you go any slower they're going to ticket you for not driving fast enough. I don't it's like flashers in the background. I just I get so nervous even Even to this day, and we have like our modes that we go, you guys, you know, you get nervous too if you've got, unless you're like my friend, you know, who's never gotten a ticket, never been pulled over. But for those of us who live in the real world, you have the personality that you step into when you get pulled over, don't you? Do we have some criers, right, in the room? It's okay. Church is a place of honesty. We can admit that. I'm not, I'm not a crier, right? But I've got my own thing. I'll, I'm like, I act like the most innocent person in the universe, right? Like, yes, sir. You know, no, uh, no ma'am, right? So polite. And then they're like, do you know how fast you're going? And I was like, speed limit, for sure. I always drive the speed limit. And I'm like, I got you a 38 and a 25. And I'm like, no, I would ne- I'm a minister of the Lord, officer. <laughs> <laughs> Clutch my pearls, never, you know? I got pulled over the last, like, three times, and I was driving the old car that I had. It was this, like, super old Toyota Prius, and it was pulled over three times in a row, and I've never gotten a ticket, not because of my shtick. I think they were just impressed that I could, like, actually get the car up to 45 miles an hour. They were like, well done. I a, we go into our, def- our moats. I get a friend who got a ticket for, driving, uh, for speeding while driving behind an officer, and he, like, pulled over and then ticketed him. He gets defensive. That's his go to thing. And so, my friend, he looks at the officer and he goes, Okay, that's fine. How much did you write your ticket for? It, yeah, it never works. Don't ever try to be defensive. Zero for a hundred just never works. But we, we get. Irrational, like soccer moms turn into like gladiators swinging the purses around. You've seen the dash cam videos. Like our psychology kind of does something weird when there's like a $150 ticket on the line. It's totally irrational. I don't understand what it is. But we just sort of assume in the back of my mind, you know, it's going to go on my permanent record. I'm going to get points on my license. It's going to have an adverse effect on my, on my insurance bill. And, and we like our brains start to spin out of control. And the reason why I bring that up this morning is because I think there's something deeper going on in that moment. Because a lot of times, how we relate to the authority around us is also indicative of how we relate to the authority above us. And whatever like our go-to kind of thing is, is it possible that you take that experience of the cop around the corner and you lay it over top of the vision that you have, the understanding that you have of the God that's above you and around you. We're in a series right now and it's called Your God is Too Small. And I just want to offer something, the disclaimer I'm going to offer every time. I don't want to be taken out of context on this. God is not too small. Jesus, as he is the fullness of God, revealed to us in scripture, God is not too small. But sometimes we have this We have this this ability to take God and to squish him down and put him into a box, and I want to highlight that God is far too small. Last week, we talked about this warm, fuzzy God, and we said, that's great, there's more to him than that. Today, we look at God and we say, he's like a cop around the corner, and he's got his hair dryer out, he's he's, he's got his radar gun out, and he's just ready to to nail us. And sometimes we have this cosmic assumptions, God is a lot like that. He's keeping our permanent record. We're probably doing something right wrong right now and he's ready to nail us for that too. Add it onto the permanent record. And we just sort of assume this is who God is. He's watching and he's waiting and he's cheering against you. This morning we're going to speak into that by answering just a simple question. What does God think of you? What does God think of you and me? Don't take it from me. Jesus is going to speak into this space. far more qualified than I am. And when Jesus speaks into this space, he does so uh, with a story. Uh, If you'd like to follow along, we're going to go to Luke chapter 15. And Jesus has got a couple of groups of people, and he just wants to, to tell them, And to tell us all about what God thinks of me. Uh, We start off the story, Luke 15 and verse 11. And Jesus continued. And he tells this beautiful story. And he says there was a a man who had two sons. And we have to remember that the father has two sons. Because Jesus is talking to two groups of people. Uh, Jesus is talking to the tax collectors and sinners. True story, that's what they called them. And they showed up because, honestly, Jesus kept showing up to them. Jesus kept showing up with them, and so they show up with him to hear a little bit more about who this spiritual guy is, who this rabbi is that cares about them. And at the same time, there's this other group of people uh, to his right that are the religious authorities, the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And they're there, radar guns drawn, ready to nail Jesus for something that he got wrong. They're tired of this spiritual guy, Jesus, hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. We have to remember that there's two sons. And the younger one said to his father, he said, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Something is lost in the translation. Uh, When Luke wrote this down originally, he didn't write in English. He wrote in an ancient form of Greek. Greek. The word that he uses for property is the word bios, where we get our word biology, the study of living things. The father divides his, not property, it's not like a 401k that gets split up so easily. He divides up his life, he divides up his livelihood among these boys. And could you imagine how insulting that is? The younger one said to his father, Give me my share of the estate. Like, the the younger brother is going up to his dad. Dad, you know that thing that happens to all families when uh, the parents get old and then they pass away and there's an inheritance that gets split up among the children? Can we skip to the ending? Like, can we go to the part where you're dead and I'm rich? Can we do that right now instead of later? And he shocks everybody when dad says yes. And so the son, not long after that, uh, got together everything he had his father's life and he set off for this distant country and there he squandered his wealth in wild living and i will leave it up to your imaginations to figure out what wild living is presumably it's cutting the tags off the mattresses running with scissors you know just super serious stuff drinking milk right out of the carton can you believe it but he he squandered he squanders his dad's livelihood with his with this wild living. Now, oftentimes, if you've heard this passage before, you, you, you think about the money that was lost, right? Like, oh man, like half of his dad, everything that his dad had, he just squandered and he wasted it, and I don't wanna back away from that. He lost money, but money can be regained. We would be wise when we're writing ourselves into this story to consider what else he squandered. He didn't just squander money, he also squandered time. He wasted an unknown amount of time on this kind of life that he cannot get back. I would encourage you in, the, in your quiet audit of your own life to wonder how much and if you are still in this squandering mode. Another Netflix episode, the doom scrolling kind of on repeat I know friends that look back on their 20s and a portion of their 30s and going, it wasn't like I missed the opportunity to make money. I knew I would always have that. I missed the opportunity to build a life. I squandered not just the money opportunity, not just my time, I squandered relationships. Here, the boy squandered the potential of developing a friendship with his brother. He squandered the potential of building a relationship with his father, choosing instead the wild living. Jesus continues on in the story and he says, After that boy, after, after he spent everything, there was a famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. And so he went out and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his To feed the pigs, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Jesus is telling this story, presumably about a good Jewish kid, to a group of other good and bad two sons, Jewish kids. And now he has this picture of the story of, of the boy is so absolutely hit rock bottom that he is looking up at the bottom half of a pig. This, this kind of like unclean animal that she, he shouldn't have anything to do with. Yet now the pig is in a higher position than even, than even he is. And he comes to his senses, which is a fun way to talk about faith. When he comes to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am, starving to death. I'll set out and I'll go back to my father. I'll say to him, and this is his speech that he's got here, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father." It's a, it's a far-off country. He's got plenty of time to rehearse his speech. It's a far-off country that he's going, um, make me, Father, I've sinned against heaven and again. No. <clears throat> no, Father, I've sinned against heaven. Now, Father, I've sinned against heaven. Like, he's got time to, like, practice this on the way home. What he understands is like a a, a Jewish culture kind of phenomenon on on two levels. Uh, The first one is that he understands retribution must be paid. That's how forgiveness happens. It's that you pay back at least a portion of what you've taken. So he knows he he needs to figure out a way to earn a little bit of money. Um, The second thing is he understands how the social tiers work, particularly in ancient Near Eastern uh, businesses, cultures, in this case, the family was probably pretty wealthy. Uh, Dad owned the business. He was, he was the patriarch above it all, family-run business. Um, kids, let's be honest, back then, sons were next on the list as ones to inherit the business a little bit later on. Just beneath that, it was the household servants, uh, people who lived on the quarters. Uh, they were paid, they had a roof over their head, and they had food to eat. That was all provided by the family, by the patriarch. At the bottom of this social tier was what was called uh, hired servants. That was like the day laborers the people brought in on a temporary basis, kind of an as-needed basis if they were in agriculture or farming, just to pick the fields and then move on. They're on the bottom of the culture, of, of, the, of the hierarchy. The son recognizes that retribution must be paid, and so he comes back and he goes, no way, no way I'm going to be brought back as a son. That ship has sailed. I don't even think I could like parlay this relationship into being like a member of the household staff. I think hired servant is the best status that I could aspire to, and that's where the speech comes in. If I get this thing right, and if I communicate well, and my dad knows how sorry I am, it's possible that retribution could be paid over time. I'll never be a son, but I could level up to a household servant. In the most beautiful words that we have in scripture, I think, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. What does God think of you? The picture that we have of a father who doesn't walk, who doesn't mosey, but he, like a child, runs to his wayward son. Let me, let me just ask, you ever, you ever think about how many hours dad spent peering over that hill? Watching, hoping, and praying for this kid to come home and when it happens (laughs) he runs he's got a speech father I've sinned against heaven and against you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son there's no time for that the father said to his servants quick Put the best robe on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fat calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. You guys, in the, in the passage, we've got a robe, a ring, and sandals. That's not an accident. Dad isn't just trying to like offer his kid some trinkets to say welcome. It's deeply meaningful, particularly in that culture. Uh, you would see, the first thing that you'd notice about something is what they were wearing. You could see that long before you could even see who the person was. You saw their clothes before you saw their face. So when he puts the family robe on his back, it's like he's giving him his identity back. They put a ring on his finger, the, the, the ring. It wasn't just jewelry, was so much more than that. A ring was a signet ring. You could sign things by, by pressing it into a still hot wax seal to show this is who I am. If you were in the market and you didn't want to take the, the, the money with you and you, you needed to buy some stuff to load up on some raw materials to, to purchase to bring back to the family farm, you would do that on credit. You would take the ring and you would press it in and say, no, 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 my family is good for it. The ring signifies he's giving his son the authority of the family back and the sandals on his feet. There's no way to say that other than just that he's giving him his dignity back. This son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He's lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. I want us to notice a couple of things. First of all, it's this picture of who God is. And it's this beautiful picture of a dead Who doesn't do the culturally expected thing of just kind of walk and mosey, but he hikes up his his big tunic, pushes it into his leather belt, and he runs with like leg showing and all. Just runs out to his boy. That's the picture that Jesus wants you to have of who God is. The second thing that we've got to notice in the story, that retribution had to be paid. Remember that? It's a a Jewish custom that when there was a severing that took place uh, relationally, especially a financially one, then some kind of retribution would need to be paid to make the family whole again. And the son comes back and what does he have? He's got his future labor. That's the only thing that he could possibly offer to even begin to pay that retribution. And the dad goes, no, no, no. If retribution has to be paid, allow me to pay it. The robe, the ring, the sandals, the calf, all of it goes to show I have paid the debt that you could never pay off yourself. And the third thing that takes place in this story is really Jesus kind of winking at all of us and saying, this is how salvation takes place. If you're looking for a takeaway on the little like this part of the story, just notice something. The kiss comes before the confession. I think order is so incredibly important here. As the boy is coming over that hill, there's going to be a reunion and there's going to be a making whole. There's going to be a restitution that gets paid. But the kiss of the father and the payment of the restitution comes before the confession of the boy coming home. You see, that is so incredibly important because so oftentimes like in the church we have this attitude like, hey listen, clean yourself up, get yourself right, start acting and start believing like we do. And when you come in, there's going to be a kiss and there's going to be a celebration and we'll kill the proverbial fattened calf on your behalf. And Jesus goes, that's not what your father is like though. That's not what God is like. Jesus goes, that's not who I am. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The kiss comes before the confession. We think, about, we think about our own holiness, believing the right things and behaving the right way. We think about our own holiness as something that God wants from us. And God goes, no, you don't get it. That's, it's never been about that. Holiness, unholiness is the thing that drives this wedge in between you and me. It's not like I want holiness from you. No, I want holiness for you. Because it's your holiness that starts to build healthy, horizontal relationships with one another. It's your holiness that starts to build and rebuild this healthy, vertical relationship with God and humanity. I don't want holiness from you. I want holiness for you. The kiss comes before the confession. But there's a meanwhile. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field... Listen to this. When he came near the house, he sees that he heard the music and the dancing. And so he called one of the servants and he said, What's going on? Your brother, your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fat and calf because he has him back safe and sound. And you think, man, this guy's got to be so happy, his brother's home, right? So the older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so what does the father do? Remember what God is like? He doesn't just chase after. He doesn't just pursue the wayward ones. He, he pursues the ones that never left. And he answered his father, look, all these years, and pay attention to language. There's so much irony here. Jesus, masterful storyteller. I really recommend you follow him, truly. <laughs> I have been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, your orders, Right? not your requests, right, as a father, your orders as a commander. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Remember he divided his life between the both of them? Just gonna leave that right there. But when this son of yours, come on now, this son of yours, I love it because I relate to it so well. Like when I come home, And like one of my kids, they would never do that now, but one of my kids, just like red juice over the carpet, right? And you're like, man, you are going to get it. And what I hear is like, Dirk, this son of yours brought the red juice. Like like distancing yourself from the relationship. This son of yours, he says. He's not my brother. He's your son, Dad, who has squandered your property with... So it wasn't running with scissors. Um, (laughs) When he comes home... It was not red juice over the carpet. You killed the fattened calf for him. My son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because his brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And that's the end of the passage. But the huge irony behind this one is that the son, the older brother, can't help but relate to his dad as a servant. Like, like the dramatic irony in the story is this great reversal that takes place. It's like got a Uno card on top of an Uno card, like reverse, reverse. The the kid brother, you know, the, the little one, he want, he was a son, and then he became the, and he wants to get hired back as a servant. And he comes back, and his dad goes, no, you can't be a servant. You're my son. And the kid that never left, who's a son, demotes himself by the end of the story, and he becomes a servant. All this time, I've been slaving after you. The son of yours, you're not my dad, he's not my brother, I'm just a hired hand by my own choosing, and dad is like pleading with him to come back in the the house and be part of the celebration. And he does that to himself, and Jesus masterfully just doesn't finish the story. He's like, he's begging his listeners then, really he's begging you today, finish the story yourself. It's never been about what the older brother does. It's always been about what you're going to do. What's your next move? Man, the hardest thing in the world is to stop being the younger brother without becoming the older brother. He's outside of the party by his own will. Father, dad is pleading with him, please, please, come on. And the curtains just kind of close. And you're like, where's the celebration? Where's the, where the joy Theologian uh, Paul Tripp has this line Grace is only exciting for sinners. He didn't think he needed to be saved for anything. All this time, I have never disobeyed your orders. So it's about to get real. Heads up. I just want to make an observation. Life with God is amazing, (laughs) it's so good. Like having our eternity shored up, stored away, so, so we know that nothing that could possibly ever eclipse anything short of pure joy awaits us. That's a good hope. But the hope isn't for then. I mean, it's, it's for right now. Just that we have this confidence and we have this hope even today. I mean, it changes everything. I could go on and on about that, but I just want to leave it at life with Jesus is amazing. That that's why I think Jesus tells the story like he does. Um, you know, when the when the kid brother comes to his senses, because it's just so good, and some of you have experienced that. It makes sense. Why don't more people want to come home? I think that there's two reasons, two things going on here. The first one is because. People don't come home because they're afraid of the judgment of God. They don't want to come home because they have not heard about the prodigal father that Jesus came to tell us about. We use that word prodigal because we think it means like wayward or lost. The dictionary definition of prodigal means reckless, extravagant. And if you look at somebody in the story who's recklessly extravagant, it isn't the kid who does what kids do. It's the dad who gets burned once and then goes right back to that particular well. Like he's ready to sign me up. Just please serve me, have another. He's like in for it again. The ring, the robe, the sandals, the calf. He's like, I'm in. Let's do, if there's a prodigal in the story, it's the father. People don't come home because they're afraid of the judgment of God simply because I think they haven't heard or they haven't been communicated to in a way that they can understand about the prodigal love that God has. Or people might not be afraid of the judgment of God. They could be afraid of our judgment. And that's the part that kind of gets real. Because it's not on the rest of the world to automatically know that we're loving and we're gracious and we're a welcoming and hospitable place and people. It's on us to communicate that to the world, to create that space. People are afraid of of coming home and being a part of this community because they still don't act the way that I should act, I still don't believe all of the right things and I just don't think that I'm about to fit in. So I might as well not even try. A true story about a husband and a wife and she wanted nothing more than for her husband to become a Christian, to, to fall in love with Jesus. It's the thing that she prayed about every day. It's the thing that she prayed about more than any other thing. And then one day, It happened. Like somehow, right? Jesus gets a hold of this guy's heart and he's like, yes. I'm interested in the things of God. Yes. And for a day, she is thrilled and she is excited because they are now moving spiritually in the same direction and she's filled with hope and she's filled with this, this deep longing of this connection with her and her husband but as a little time starts to go by, he's not quite checking off the list that she's making for him. You've got to sign up for this Bible reading plan. You've got to join this group. You've got to get into this kind of like recovery seminar. Like we've got a lot of work to do. These are the things you believe. These are the things you can't believe and he's moving, but he's not moving nearly at the speed that she would have him move. And so now, at the moment that she is supposed to be so joy-filled, she's just crushed because he's not going fast enough. Like, hold up. He's just met Jesus. Like, let's just give it a minute. He's out on a business trip. True story. She packs her things, and she leaves. On the divorce paper, she cites irreconcilable differences. Yes. Yes. Yes, the difference, the irreconcilable difference is he's like hanging on to God with his fingernails and she's hanging on to his sins with claws. People don't want to come home because they're afraid of God's judgment, they haven't heard about the prodigal love of the Father, or because of our judgment. The way that we can't help but hang on, particularly to somebody else's sins. Now I ask this question, what's God like? What does God think about you? I think the God who's got the radar gun watching us mess up so he can nail us, that God is far too small. If we've learned something from the story, God is like a father who runs after his kids. It was several years ago. It was a men's conference. There's 16,000 men and boys in attendance, and they're all singing out. Now, now some of some of you haven't experienced like men singing out uh, at the top of their lungs together. I probably about half of us have not experienced <laughs> exclusively men all singing out. Like dudes, we don't like we don't shout sing very often. Like we don't. And it's a probably a gross generalization, but. Generally, it's not the fellas who, like, really get into the music and worship part of the worship service, okay? But to, to be in the climate with 16,000 men and boys all singing out together, I mean, it's an experience. And this, uh, this speaker at the event, uh, he's just about ready to go out, and he gets to do what speakers sometimes get to do, is, like, peek around the corner and just to, like, watch people. One of my regrets in life is I never learned how to sing, so I can't be up here and just like watch us and like all sing together. Sometimes I pop up a little bit early, and you think it's on accident, but it's actually on purpose. I like to hear people sing, but, but he, peeks his, he peeks his eyes out, and he just wants to see the men and the boys all sing out together, and he sees this dad with a teenage son, probably 18, 19 years old, a, a big teenage son, not a, not a little one, and the kid is in a wheelchair, He found out a little bit later on. um, He was paralyzed in high school. He can't walk, and he's also blind. And the 16,000 men and boys are all on their feet, except for the one boy. And they're they're singing out this, this beautiful song. From the front row, this teenage song, they're singing out, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. And some of you know the hymn. And the dad wants his son to like experience the, the moment into it. And so, he, and so he looks at his son and, and he like puts his arms under his son's arms and he, and he like picks him up out of that wheelchair. And they're all shout singing together. And he looks at his son. Remember, his, his, his son's blind. He can't see his dad's face, but he has seen his dad's face before. And his dad is shout singing the lyrics of this song. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him, crown him Lord of all. And the son has got this facial expression. And and as he declares that, crown him Lord of all. And dad is shout singing at his son. This smile cracks forth. And the speaker, he goes, it was like the sun just broke through the open clouds. It's the most beautiful sight you've ever seen. And they had like 10 minutes of worship to do. They had like three or four more songs. And so the other dads know this guy can't hold it. And so these men come around this son and they all kind of prop him up. They all kind of hold him up. And the dad just grabs his boy's hand in his and he's still singing over him. If you had this curiosity about what God thinks of you, I'd have to say it's a lot like that. Zephaniah 3.17. You know it's heavy when I'm quoting Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He will rejoice over you with singing. what God thinks of you. That's what God is like. Church, when somebody comes home, when we meet somebody who has yet to come home, reflect to them the heart that Jesus has just shown you. Show them who God is like. And maybe you just needed to hear that word for yourself this morning. If you'd like to pray with somebody after worship, we would love to have that honor. Let's pray to our Father together and invite you to stand up. God in heaven, we come to you with our hearts heavy because of who we've thought that you are, the boxes that we've put you in. And God, we know that you're not a copper on the corner who's ready to give us a ticket. We know that you're a lot more than that. We know that at times we've been the younger brother who's had to rehearse his speech and you've kissed us even before the confession came from our lips. God, we've been the older brother who can't help but point out the sins and flaws of others. Meanwhile, entirely overlooking our own. God, you have been and will always be the Father who holds our face in your hands. And says, I love you. Welcome home. Thank you, Lord.